and welcome back. It's time for the 82nd version of Vegan Radio. Wah! Yes, back after a hiatus. It wasn't an actual hiatus, just a perceived hiatus from your podcast listening perspective. We've actually been uh, doing shows. We've had about three shows since uh, the last time you've heard a podcast. And in those three shows, we've had many, many technical difficulties. Troubles. You know you're Jones in for tofu. So, this podcast is going to be an uh, amalgamation featuring outtakes from the first show we did on uh, July 2nd. When Megan had just gotten back from India, Jillian had retired from Vegan Radio, started working her job on Thursdays, coincidentally, and uh, we we had this show when we were going to have vegan children's book author Ruby Roth as our featured interview, but as it turned out, the phone lines at the radio station weren't working, so blah de blah de blah she didn't come on, but we had a pretty good show without her. And then uh, afterwards, I interviewed her by Skype. So we can give you that interview on this show, along with the uh, original banter that would have went along with it. And some surprise, surprises. Surprise, surprise, surprise. So we're going to talk about uh, Megan's return. We're going to talk about onions. We're going to talk about the humane farming myth. And then we're going to go into some uh, metaphysical territory similar to what you might have heard on our uh, New Year's Eve show of 2009. Uh, without further ado, let me give you over to the return of Megan Shackleford from India. How is India, Megan? <laughs> in one, in one Sum it up. You've got about five minutes. In, <laughs> in a couple sentences. Um... Well, in India, I think one gets to hone their patience <laughs> a great deal. So I would say that's that's your my top number one: patience, surrender, compassion, all those, all those things. Wow! Damn, you seem the same though. <laughs> Where's the patience? The same. Where's the surrender? The same yet different. The student has become well, here the master. <laughs> We're going to see if your voice is going to push the needle into the red Only a master of muffins, Megan. (laughs) This is fascinating. It is. I feel like (laughs) people who enjoy sausage or radio shouldn't be listening to us. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if you enjoy sausage radio. Hey, did anybody get that um, little clip about how ants are taking over the world? Did you see that? They, there's giant super colonies on three continents. Yeah. Well, they, two anyway. And they they have mixed them together and they just, they recognize each other as friends even though they're yeah. on different continents. They're, it's crazy. Well, they're cosmopolitan ants. They, they're traveling the world on our shipping vessels, apparently. And uh, that's how they, I, I don't know. I mean, given enough time, they're going to start to dislike each other. They just uh, happen to all have arisen at similar point in time i guess hmm. but they're huge some of these colonies cover like miles and miles that's what i read i'm told <laughs> <laughs> so did you meet any ants in india i didn't meet any ants in india you're probably lucky there um but i did i did uh maintain my veganism in india wow um for the most part <laughs> uh-huh and um i mean you know I, you can't be you can never be 100 percent sure yeah um all that ghee and everything yeah yeah, you can ask for things without it, but you just never, never know. Yeah, so you stuck pretty close to highly, largely populated areas then? I, um, you know, it's not, it's, no, I mean, I was in different areas. I was in, I was in, you know, rural vi- villages at times, but um, it's just not really a problem because it's so vegetarian focused in India. So, you know, as long as I didn't want to eat desserts, it wasn't mm. a problem. I see. And uh, how are they doing, <laughs> India? How are they doing? Yeah, um, I, well, I worry because, you know, I only hear about them through the media. Yeah, they're a little overpopulated. Uh, yeah. little overpopulated. Right. Um, but still a fascinating place to be, that's for sure. Yeah. Lots of colors. Mm. Lots of garbage. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like everywhere we go and, you know, uh, like whether it's Iraq or India or whatever, uh, 
where the population has grown. They've found they've got to deal with that stuff. They've got to deal with yeah. all the waste. Well, the you know the problem is is that um, all the plastic mm. because you know garbage before even though it might have been there wasn't a sanitation system and it was kind of thrown around it would compost a lot easier but now with all the plastic that's sticking around a lot longer yeah it definitely does this is danielle from vegan treats bakery and you're listening to vegan radio on valley free radio wxoj lp northampton 103.3 fm and podcasting at veganradio.com preserve the integrity of all living things eat vegan A lot of things have changed around here, Megan. I know. Yeah, tell me what, what's going on here. Derek's really, he's really taking control. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we had a, we had a whole new, uh, you know, guest host to, you know, he felt he had to whip her into shape. So I think he's still in that mode. Yeah. <laughs> but she did great. She, need, she, cause she didn't need any of it. She was quite natural. She didn't, any, she didn't need any whipping. But she sends her, she sends her wishes today. <laughs> she, <laughs> Have she, a great show, guys. She sends her regards. Yeah, absolutely. Like me, she's moving into new new digs. Oh yeah, yeah, it's looking good. I'm on the top floor. She she's in the basement. Oh, she's in the same space as you? No. Oh, I thought you've been of the same house. <laughs> no, this is just our parallel lives kind oh, of I see. playing out in sort of complementary ways. I see. But yeah, is she gonna make it in the basement? Yeah, she'll do all right. It's a it's a big place. I'm kind of jealous, even. Really? Sure. It's got a nice garden outside and everything. Oh. Basement spaces are tough, I feel. But I'll tell you what, first thing she did, set up her kitchen with, uh, you know, a super vegan pantry. And nice. she's, uh, yeah, she's like triply serious, you know, at this she's, new place now that she has total control. So she's rededicating to her veganism. Was there a little laxity going on there? What's I don't what's think so. Story? Now that she's hooked on a nutritional yeast, I think she can, <laughs> she'll never go back. <laughs> I heard her talking about that. She was really into it. Yeah. I wish we had her here today <laughs> to discuss it. It's, well, it's fun when you get onto some, like, some new vegan product that you haven't had, and it's kind of new and exciting. Yes, it's true. Why, the day I discovered mustard greens. <laughs> I hearken back to it. Uh, the day I discovered Swiss chard. That was not a fun day. No. No. I don't even know. Oh. Why? Because <laughs> it tastes like dirt. So it, it tastes like <laughs> dirt, Scott. It's too bad. You know, I had this whole segment produced called uh, "I'm All Prepared With" called "Know Your Vegetables." Oh, really? And this is the first one I'm going to do is going to be the onion. It tastes like dirt. And I was going to tell all about the onion, but you'll have to wait. What happened? Is, is this today? No, no. It's it's in my it's in my notebook. <laughs> it's in the making. <laughs> I got it. I got it all ready. Can it's you ready do, to go at a moment's notice? But I, you, I figured we were full all full today. Can you do Swiss chard after the onion? Yes, we'll hit we'll hit up the Swiss chard, or maybe I'll just do chard in general. Because I want to I want to talk about it. Know your greens. Yeah. Well, why don't you talk about it right now? About because <laughs> <laughs> I because I, I haven't done my research. That's right. She can't speak authoritatively. Right, so uh, this this interview was going to be about humane farming. Maybe we should just talk about that. Well, I can tell you a little bit about what this pamphlet's talking about. Tell and, us, uh, Scott. Um, this break is, it down. Break it down, Daddy. Break it down. Uh, the media, of course, is paying increased attention to this whole issue because there's a lot more stuff from the alternative media, especially, and things like PETA grabbing attention, and you know things like Prop Two are out there. It's huge. So. The media are starting to latch onto this stuff and the language that's being used now, of course, the farming industry wants to co-opt some of that language. So we have, uh, you know, the sort of things like as Prop 2 passed in California, um, apparently there was a, a boost in sort of this whole free range thing. Uh, actually, people started buying more chicken and things or something because I think uh, one of our guests, and I forget whom it was. Well, we've had a couple. We've had uh, Gary Francione and we had, um, bang, who's the other one? That's right. <laughs> And uh, she said, down. she said that um, that basically, you know, it is that kind of thing that that in fact it's kind of like people have this feel good thing and then they go on with their lives, right. having been placated. They can turn to their neighbor and go, "Huh, you? What do you think?" Yeah, it's okay. Uh, so um, yeah, so basically covering that. But is the public, in fact, being misled about this stuff like cage free, free range, humanely certified, grass fed? Yes, is What's the, the question. Dirt? What's the dirt? Well, the dirt is that, um, you know, apparently the laws are not strong enough to, uh, and these definitions are still very loose and, of course, lax. And, you know, you, uh, there just aren't enough 
uh, people who can go around to check every little uh, nook and cranny to see that everything is cool. So uh, you have uh, agribusiness and its marketing firms, and they're uh, using these slogans to make us to assuage our guilt. Is there such a thing as humane farming? And you know, I think in a certain regard, you could say ideally we could reach towards that goal of you know. Make sure all the cows have plenty of space to roam around and Pillows be happy and, and live and these happy. We should get little orchestras for, to play uh, music for them so that their milk comes out easier. And uh, yeah, and we but, should get massage therapists to go <clears throat> massage them. And then when we kill their babies, <laughs> so we can drink their milk, the it, it won't we won't feel as bad about it. And then like um, and then when we send them to get killed for hamburger at the end of their milking cycle of five or six years tops and we won't feel so guilty about that either because the cows will have massage therapists and pretty (laughs) pretty green grass to jump in and it's going to be a really nice world well there you go i think it like derek's saying it is important to remember that no matter how nice a life the animals you know did have or did not have um which I think it is a lot of times in most cases, um, that it's going to be a violent death. It's not like, you know, the, the, the farmers are using the animals to, to make money, and so eventually they're going to be killed. In farming, we call it harvesting. <laughs> you, can call, you, can call, uh, you can call it indentured servitude, but it's still slavery, you know? Yeah. Yes, there you have it. I mean, it comes down to that whole, you know, that in fact what we're, you know, whether or not these these things are being uh, are out there and are part of the now the cultural discourse, they are still perpetuating the same behavior, the same activities, and those are the things I think that we need to be much more, you know, examining and looking at. And you know, it's just uh, obviously in order with the world being the way it is, population ballooning out of control. And the uh, period of population doubling having <laughs> in each period, like... Uh, doubling having, doubling, doubling having. having. I'm telling you. In 20, what is it? 20 years, the population is going to double to 12 billion. And 10 years after that, it's due to double again to 24 billion. And I did the calculations, and I guess it'll be doubling every year starting in the year 2047. The population on Earth will be doubling uh, in at... In under a year. I think um, Mother Nature might have some surprises up her sleeve before that happens. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. But, you know, the thing is that populations are concentrating into cities. Um, rural areas are being abandoned. Um, you know, villages and things. And there's lots of, a lot, a lot of these slums are building up around some of the, you know, urban centers in various parts of the world. Uh, I think that's just going to be the, the thing. And, and if you've ever seen Soylent Green... <laughs> Which I highly recommend. <laughs> it's people. Yeah, well, people. the world is overpopulated. It's hot, and you know, if you if you can find a stock of celery, it's worth like a thousand dollars or something. <laughs> uh, there's a great scene where uh, Charlton Heston takes a cigarette from this girl, and it's like, you know, if I had the money, I'd smoke two, three of these every day. <laughs> and that's the way it's going to be. So, <laughs> says girls and boys, day. get used to it. Um, yeah, I mean that's it's ultimately a, you know you can't mandate people's reproductive habits, and as long as we have this sense of continual affluence, uh, and certainly that seems to be indicated. You by You can't that. mandate, but you could uh, instead of encouraging, you know, bigger families and more consumerism, you could encourage the opposite. You know, say, look, the Earth's got too many people; it's time to slow it down. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, like developing. Uh, you know, helping to economically develop or, you know, basically bring people out of poverty and help educate them is the most effective thing we can do, actually. Um, you sound like a liberal, Scott. Jesus. Uh, you know, I'm a cliche. <laughs> I'm a cliche. Poor Scott. But, uh, uh, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> but I'm just, uh, I'm really, a, what can I say? I'm a scientist. We've really strayed from humane and, farming. Uh, science <laughs> does tend to have a liberal bias. And, you know, not that I'm promoting for people to eat animal products, but if you do continue to do so, really the only way, um, you know, to know what's really going on is to see if there's an address or some kind of contact, like for where you're you're getting your your cage free eggs, and go to that place and look look and see what's happening and see if you're if you feel okay with it. Now, the Humane dot org is a really good site. It has um, right on the front here some of our. Uh, 
activists we like. Harold Brown, former mm-hmm. beef farmer. Howard Lyman, former, former cattle rancher. And uh, some sanctuary founders, some investigators, animal rescuers. Any uh, humane any pop officers. singers or <laughs> famous celebrities? <laughs> Michael Jackson. That's what really matters to me. Michael Jackson was a vegetarian. Rest in peace. He was not. Yes, he was. What are you talking about? Michael Jackson was a vegetarian. Yeah. You didn't I, know that? He's on the list. On the list. I'm not sure. Is Demerol from a vegetable? Whatever. I, I haven't he heard may of have, anything about this. He may have been nuts. Check the vegetarian <laughs> list. He was a vegetarian. Hey, we don't want to associate. <gasps> oh, <people>. stop. What? <laughs> He's afraid that all will be uh, like, well, they're all wacky. Um, but uh, uh, I, Michael I had other things going on. Yeah. But he was looking good. You know, I don't know if you've seen the latest, pi- the last pictures <laughs> that he was, you know, in his rehearsals, but, Are you, being you know, apart from apparently being, you know, rather frail and was described, yeah. so, uh, he seems in good spirits and, yeah. you know. Looking good, though. That's another, um, that's, that's, that's a very particular. I'm being subjective, obviously, but, you know, he had a yeah. smile. <laughs> and uh, International Vegetarian Union says Michael Jackson never was a vegetarian. <gasps> Is the kind of vegetarian that eats chicken. During his latest trial, it was mentioned on several occasions that he ate Kentucky Fried Chicken. No. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Internationalvegetarianunion.org. Well, he used to be on the list. <laughs> oh, you know. that's. I mean, we, we don't want to put too much uh, on celebrities, you know, because no, they're, they're would, just people and they change. Yeah, we would never want to do that. <laughs> you, you never make any connections with well, celebrities. I, I mean, Tom York of Radiohead, we know he's gonna always be vegan but <laughs> right there's some guys we some what we, what we, we really hope is that people will be who are familiar with say some figure will go hey that guy's smart and he's vegetarian yeah. you know and then they'll be like wow that girl's crazy and she's like promoting dairy or dead <laughs> dead vegetarian celebrities you can you can use because they're they're always going to be dead so if they died vegetarian <laughs> or vegan then it's a good that then it's fair use fair game I see. I think Derek's gone a little berserk since I've last been here on the show. <laughs> <laughs> He's become more outspoken in his I, views. That's for sure. I had to take over your role. I see. The berserker. I've had to become more of a tempering influence. <laughs> it's not working very well. Scott, the temperer? No. <clears throat> You're listening to Vegan Radio. www.veganradio.com Go vegan. Go vegan. Go vegan. Megan Shackelford, I know I don't know if you want to talk about any specific people, but um one of the, one of the you know the abolitionist argument is that all this humane meat myth things are causing people who are vegans or vegetarians to rethink their positions and to become you know locavores or you know they feel the solution is to eat local meat and dairy or Maybe just dairy if they're cursed out by meat, but who knows? So the vegetarian and vegan movement is losing people to these to um, humane farming because people do feel their guilt is relieved, and perhaps they feel that they're being better for the environment if they're eating. It's mimetic locally. drift, man. Local dairy is better for the environment than eating vegan diet from all over the world. So there's this kind of argument surfacing. I think this um, new movie that came out, uh, what's it called? Food Inc. Uh-huh. It, it's, I know it's, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't really comment on it, but it is uh, Michael Pollan and um, Who wrote the guy the from Fast Dilemma? Food Nation too, right? In there. Yep. And I think they are kind of ag- advocates for eating less meat locally. That's kind of their mantra, you know, but, you know, not seeing that there's an ethical disconnect for eating meat yeah i mean that's the main that seems to be the i mean we can keep pushing that that same thing is it you know cool <laughs> to coerce other beings in the way that we do and, and to institutionalize but that the, uh, the other issue that comes along with it is that there's a lot of organizations that are animal organizations that are helping get these laws enacted for uh, you know like prop 2 in california and groups that are working on animal welfare issues, you know, making bigger cages and uh, laws that, you know, 
supposedly protect animals, but they also end up, you know, if Kentucky Fried Chicken says, okay, now our birds are in bigger cages, you should eat more Kentucky Fried Chicken, <laughs> you know, so these... <laughs> you should definitely of, not be eating more Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> so, but do you no understand who you what are. I'm saying? <laughs> yes. That's kind of like the... It's, I just, I think it's, I think it's hard to say because, um, you know, ob- obviously the three of us have a particular viewpoint about, um, you know, abolition for animals. But I think there are some people that are so far removed from this concept of veganism that I think there is, there's something to, even if you just get them to eat less meat and, you know, and I guess meat that is more humanely treated, you know, these organizations feel like they're doing something because you're not going to be able to just change everybody overnight into a vegan, you know? So I don't, it's not like I'm, I'm necessarily promoting those organizations that are doing that, but it's, I don't think that I do think there's some good. Yeah. I guess, I mean, we, should we use our influence to get people to go vegan to um you know push veganism rather than to you know pass laws that in the right. end end up helping sell more right of the animal products and kill more animals well i mean obviously you know certain types of protect as long as these industries are accepted uh, on a by a broad consensus which they are which they are or you know whatever by a broad blind eye <laughs> uh they're has to be some kind of you know increased regulation to deal with the types of situations that people get outraged about and you know meanwhile at the same time of course what we're doing is really trying to uh broaden the consensus that abolition would be a, a great goal in the in the long run but you know it's going to take a long time to build that consensus and abolition in in you know of slavery uh women's suffrage i mean all of that took building a consensus so and it's, I think it's like just we have to remember to stick together. And even though we might not totally agree with certain organizations that are, you know, promoting promoting laws like, you know, or promoting Prop 2 or things like that, um, they're still working, you know, for animal rights. We're all trying to like, you know, we're all trying to get people to eventually the main end to become vegan, vegetarian. So I think it's important to not, you know, no infighting. Yeah, and it's tough yes. too because we. Got I think you have the, to be critical, though. I don't think you can. Do, I mean, if if you see, <coughs> well, I'm not saying to not be critical. A lot of the resources, like of the vegan movement or of the animal rights movement, are going to um, passing laws that, in the end, help the animal industry. You know, keep their customers and increase their sales. Well, right. I guess what I would say but is. You if, gotta, work you got to work you know you got to work from the inside and the outside with any movement that's there there's got to be both so it's like why not have people working on those laws and then and then other people doing what we're doing like trying to you know really promote veganism and vegan education and things like that also to address what you just said that um you know you have a certain outrage about some something that you know about maybe you know and you're going to voice that you know what you what we really ultimately want is for more people to be aware and to feel a certain amount of the same outrage whereas i think if you look at uh, and and you know how are you going to win people to your side in that outrage you know um how are they going to relate to your outrage and if you look at you know now of course in the media what grabs all the attention is people bombing you know uh animal testing centers and this kind of thing and and in the the word animal rights terrorist is now in the you know it's going to be in the dictionary this year i'm sure uh and uh and it's become it's become a very powerful meme that demonizes anybody and everyone who is like in any way connected to this movement and i think that 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 captures the public imagination very strongly and how do you how do you dissuade people from getting hung up on that and from you know, being uh, pushed more into the corner that they're already in by being like, oh, yeah, I don't want to be an animal rights terrorist. Those guys are crazy uh, loons. All it does is entrench people more in their position. So, you know, again, we're, we're, we have a, a big fight against that. And um, so, I mean, 
gosh, <laughs> just to get people to go vegan is a, I think from my point of view, it's like, I think it looks, it looks to me like, you know, just, it's a kind of business I don't want to be in that, you know, if every one of us is in charge of these factory farms, every one of us is, you know, every time we go to the supermarket, as they say in food Inc, you're voting at the cash register. You know, you buy something, yeah. you're like, I love this ground beef. Scott, I, you just saw the trailer. Didn't I you? did. I saw the trailer. <laughs> That's why I mentioned it. It might be taken out of context. I don't want to be seen. Yeah. I don't want to be seen as being plagiarizing. Here. Um, so yeah, I saw the trailer. It looks great. <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. Um, yeah. So ultimately, yeah, I mean, we're continuing that thing where we, I think here we're, we're educators and that's our, our main goal. Um, and as far as these movements that are testing the laws and people who are in that front, I think, you know, as we're doing what we're doing, we're going to be backing them up and we're going to getting, we're be getting more people that will be backing them up, uh, on their side, which is what they need. All right. Well, with that, we have to take a little break and, uh, re, uh, configure <laughs> Re- we, gotta, we gotta recalibrate derek i'm gonna unplug replug <laughs> we gotta we gotta get our we gotta we gotta get, gotta get derek's act together. together here yeah starting and with our uh, metaphors our metaphors we gotta assimilate our similes yeah. and metaphysically metaphorize yeah vegan radio turn it up derek beck narrating the show from july 2nd Megan's return. Uh, you just heard us talking about humane farming, which is uh, one of the most uh, relevant topics for animal rights and veganism today. And you're going to be hearing a lot more about that in upcoming shows. Um, we're really going to focus in on this because uh, we're losing a lot of vegans and vegetarians to the locavore movement, um, which doesn't necessarily need to be the case. You know, you can be a local vegan. We're going to explore ways to do that. And we're also going to be exploring uh, why people are always trying to overlook the ethical aspect of where their food comes from, you know, whether it's slaughtered locally, raised locally, or slaughtered factory farm style in a factory slaughterhouse. Um, You know, either way, individual after individual animal goes to their death unhappy. Um, but this next segment of our show is, uh, <laughs> if you heard our podcast on uh, the New Year's of 2009, you would have heard it was just me and Scott. Uh, we called it the meta- metaphysical show, metaphysical vegan show or something like that. And uh, Scott is uh, quite a storehouse of information and uh, about technology and spirituality and all kinds of interconnections between the two and uh, although he calls himself an atheist he's pretty well schooled in buddhism as far as the theory of buddhism and uh, so he's he's very interesting to probe and uh, this time along you know megan's there to help me probe the depths of the scotty mind and uh, after that new year's show we got a lot of uh, requests uh, fan letters that said wow scott we'd like to hear more more from Scott. <laughs> Less Derek, more Scott. So that's what I got out of it, but I understand. Um, so anyway, this next segment is going to be uh, some of that Scott that you've all been begging for, and a little bit of Derek and a little bit of Megan to break it up into chunks that you can digest. Vegan Radio. Because the animals are listening to... You know what this all comes down to? That's right. You all need to read Eckhart Tolle, Power of oh Now. We've <laughs> <laughs> got to be if in the a, moment. If it's a book on tape, I'll, you know, I'll listen to it <laughs> while I'm working on these problems. It's a great idea, Scott. Yeah, I like it. I'm listening to Blink right now. <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> yeah. Is that after your emptiness you meditation? Um, actually, it was before my meditation. <laughs> Thank you, Derek. So tell us about emptiness. <laughs> Um, emptiness is the Tibetan Buddhist concept of basically, I say, being in the present moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I would so say this moment is empty. It is. Well, it's a recognition that all phenomena 
are interdependent, are interdependent and have right. no independent existence apart from other things. So the way we look at things, it's not, it's not that you're saying things are not real or that they're an illusion, but they don't exist the way that we think they exist. And it may, in fact, turn out that... <laughs> that explains you. That, uh, <laughs> the only, that uh, energy is like, you know, just like space is just a property of energy, you know? More and, and, you more, more, and more. You realize and more. that you're, like, you would not exist the way you ex- think you're existing if I wasn't here. More and more to, uh, Buddhism. inspire your existence with my presence. Well, it would be a little different from your perspective if you weren't here. <laughs> yeah. More and more Buddhism and science are finding common ground, especially um, physics and Buddhism. Yeah, it, it cert- I mean, if you look at, uh, like, what is this Big Bang? Apparently what it was is all this energy, which had no space separating it, suddenly inflates. And what does it create? It creates this big empty space, which gives the universe its is immense big, value. Is Big Bang still a theory, though? Um, it, what do you mean, ju- still a theory? I mean... It's never going to be anything but a theory. <laughs> what, if, what if God created... The Big Bang. <laughs> what if God created, that would uh, that would be on a hypothesis which you can this, test, like, and if you eventually dude. produce experiments but for if, it, like, you can get a theory. What if like this dude with like a lot a big beard and stuff, like uh, created the universe? Uh huh. And he said, "Well, the the result would be the same." It took, a, it took a break. You'd still have Sunday. something that you, you could, could look at and go, "What's exactly. it all about?" Um. <laughs> so but, is is the Big Bang, the Big Bang? What about the Big Bang? I don't know. It's I the big. The, it's the big inflation. I think the Big Bang is is in line with Buddhism. Is least. there a deflation before the inflation? Well, the, they say that you is know there's these periods a, a called kalpas, which bangs. are immense periods of time, and uh, between them there's existence, and then the universe. In our in our case, our universe is going to cool. So it's like a contracting and expanding. Eckhart Tolle talks about that. Yeah. I thought there were some theories that it wasn't going to contract again. Well, no, the universe is not going to all come back to a single point, not this universe that we exist in. Or what, maybe it'll just keep expanding, and then another Big Bang will have happen in the middle of that expansion. Well, here's the thing is, you know, um, the universe is actually in, it's accelerating its expansion. It seems that space begets more space. So the more space you have, the more space you get. They're trying to f- determine whether there's a quote-unquote force involved, you know, but I mean, what it comes down to is space is sort you think of this. We're expanding. Space is sort of this. Um, I think our consciousness is expanding, Derek. What about our bodies? Maybe, maybe everything <laughs> is always expanding. Well, and because the for Americans, people definitely are expanding, our bodies and are expanding. all their instruments of measurement are expanding at the same time. You think that things aren't expanding, but they really are. Uh, yeah. Well, the the thing is that um, yeah, space is what you might call. Um, something that all energy is aware of <laughs> and that's how and it's, it's just a relation it's just another relationship that we have that we have here and uh there's all kinds of fascinating things definitely happening in, in physics that are kind of undermining our conventional view that things are in space mm. that space is that are this independent continuum that exists apart from matter and matter kind of floats around in it right it uh it certainly appears more and more that space is actually something that matter simply conjures uh, as part of its matrix and that it's all sort of united, a united phenomenon. Is the space conjured or is it actually full of itself? Well, it's, <laughs> it's full of itself. Listeners. Uh, it's, it's definitely imminent. <laughs> holographic universe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's well, Scott doesn't like that book. <gasps> you don't like holographic universe? Well, it's, it's at the time it was written for one thing. Well, this is, here's what I don't like about it is that, you know, it's conclusions are, and, are very interesting and it's analogy is very interesting but i just think that it's a little bit sloppy in the way that it jumps well, from from this to a to a certain kind of conclusion yeah i think if well, it were more thoroughgoing i would enjoy it more well at least let's say it's it's an example of you know combining spirituality and science and it may not be perfect but it's just an example yeah i guess the trouble i have with that is that books like that tend to undermine the the even if scientists even entertaining the notion that there is that basically what we're what we're in is just this giant bubble of of pure awareness (laughs) 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 and uh you know that that it is real it's not you know again it's not an artifice there is artifice to the way that we experience it through our senses and there is artifice in the way that we relate to the surfaces of things but at the base it's it's 
it is ultimately real. You're, so you're you're in, you're disagreeing with the concept put out by the physicists well, in I the holographic universe. I'm I'm disagreeing with books like the Wooly Mas- the Dancing Wooly Masters, and things which attempt to make um, connections by analogy between science and spiritual ideas, as if the uh, in order to give more authority to these spiritual ideas, which themselves are really only pointing at something. And science is also pointing at something. They're, I think, in a way, they do exist on different planes, you know. But as we're getting into like quantum physics now, where you have the the imminent reality or the alt- that is represented by quantum physics is like the sort of what underlies what we see and experience. And there, space and time aren't what we experience. But within the bubble that is created by that, then you have this other level. And on that level, we can talk about things in a different way. We can relate to them in a different way. And the thing is, because they're different levels, you know, the analogies aren't going to square. And new laws, it's, it's emergent. It's this whole idea of emergent order. Uh, and, you know, the, it's like culture or, or human culture, human history. <laughs> and the like, next vegan radio. It's yet another. Emergent order. <laughs> I know. It's yet another thing, which when, when now that we have it, and it certainly seems to be a natural part of the universe. You know, now we have this discourse, we have this interrelation. There's whole orders of systems and, and things with new meanings and connections that are happening there. And uh, so... What does all of this mean? What does all of this mean? Go vegan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go vegan. And you might even not kill yourself over all this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts, the reality we live in, for sure. And... But again, I think that the re- I guess the reason I want to get at the idea that things are ultimately real is that um, people do kind of float in this thing where things are abstract and where the media can get them with these abstractions and get them distracted and forget about the things. But when it comes down to it, like all that we're what we're really about is trying to deal with the fact that we have finite resources. Life depends on resources. It's meaningless without them and that, you know. <laughs> it's ultimately a serious situation and we can't just pretend our way through it. And Ruby And we're evolving. Ruby Roth's book, That's Why We Don't Eat Animals. She <laughs> tries to tell little children about that That's concept. Right. That's about right. Finite resources. And we're gonna have her here. Uh <laughs> we're gonna interview Sometimes. her off the air, um, I guess, and we'll bring that in sometime soon. But I have to say I really like the look of this book. And uh so you like the artwork. The artwork yeah. passes. The artwork, some of it is really um, atmospheric, and well, all of it's very atmospheric. And the the animals are drawn in this stylized way, and uh, it's kind of funny. <laughs> this fish yeah. with the big lips here, for example. It's hard. It's hard <laughs> to make the the factory farms look scary. Um, yeah, it's true. When the, when the animals look like cartoon. Yeah. I guess so. Well, yeah. you don't want to. I mean, I know, I know. You don't want to scare just, kids too much. It's, it's like interesting. <laughs> you don't want them to have just having, enough. Just no, having it's like nightmares. it's interesting having having a book for children that deals with factory farms. Yeah, it's that's a it's a challenging thing to do, and uh, and there's not really much. Also, out there. also, what's interesting is like back in the day, you know, and the, the fairy tales and stuff were a mm-hmm. lot scarier than they. Have been uh, rehashed to be That's like the true. Billy Goat Gruff. So, you know, in the Grimm Brothers, you could uh, you could reclaim that <laughs> uh-huh. and show children stuff that scares them and <laughs> <laughs> scared me again. But I, I think, Dude, I think where that, are you going with this? Well, I think that might have served a purpose in its time. You know, if, right? If a, a fairy tale about a wolf that's going to eat you if you wander off the path. You know, that was a reality. And in our time, these realities are that uh, the way we're treating animals and raising animals is going to take us all off the path into the woods where we get eaten by the wolf. So you, you're, yeah, you're, well, you're voting for more realism. I, I'm just I'm just stating that um, that could be one way to look at it. I, I haven't come to a conclusion myself about, you know, I don't really know children well enough. <laughs> my <laughs> really? life has been my life has you're been kinda kind like of like a big kid. I mean, yeah, I'm a big kid and I get along with kids, but I don't have enough of them close to me in my life that I really want to claim to be an authority on yeah. what to do to their minds. Know their psychology. <laughs> but if there's anyone out there who 
Who wants to write a book like that? Maybe you should. <laughs> or who wants to lend me yeah. their small child? <laughs> you want me to raise your children. That's right. My new scary we have some neuro-linguistic programming we'd like to try on them. <laughs> uh, yeah, so S- Scared Vegan, that's, uh, that's your new film. Uh, uh, Get them young, scare them good. Uh-huh. Hi, I'm Sarah Kramer from GoVegan.net, and you're listening to Vegan Radio. So at this point in the show, we segue nicely into uh, the Ruby Roth interview that I post-recorded since we couldn't get her on the studio lines during our show. Um, I recorded an interview with her by Skype, just me and Ruby, and uh, I'm going to play it for you now, and then we'll come back for the uh, real-time outro of our show from July 2nd. Here's Ruby Roth author of That's Why We Don't Eat Animals. How you doing, Ruby? I'm good. Very happy to be um, amongst the allies today. It's <laughs> a crazy world sometimes. Yeah, it's a crazy world out there for vegans. <laughs> it really is. There's so yeah. much stuff going on right now related. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's because I see um, everything through vegan colored glasses, um, but I, I see that veganism is the solution to so many problems that are out there right now. Yeah, it's hard to be awake in a world where everyone seems to be sleeping. <laughs> Wide awake. So I saw this uh, book. I don't. I saw it somewhere on the internet first before it came out, and it really, just the cover of it alone, really caught my eye. Um, there's some there's some children's books out there that deal with vegetarianism and things like that, but um, none that I've seen that have been really amazing this one seems to be be a new breed of uh children's book for vegetarians it is it's the first children's book to address the emotionalizing animals and factory farming and the environment and endangered species you know all in regards to the food we eat and um it's comprised of ethological facts you know based on a lot of research i did so there's no um anthropomorphic talking characters. It's um, their true behavioral uh, characteristics. And uh, how did you ever get something like this published? It was hard. As you can imagine, it was a, it was a hard sell. Most publishers um, were afraid of the subject. They thought it was too subversive for children. Um, but in my experience, I found that you know, smallness in no way equals frailty and kids are really open and receptive to all this information and I've never come across one child that's been overwhelmed or freaked out in, in fact they're you know I've found the opposite that they're excited and um, they want to be involved when they hear about it and they make amazing insightful giant leaps in thinking I had one fourth grade girl tell me that her class was studying slavery and the factory farms reminded her of slavery and she wanted to go vegan. <laughs> it's funny how it's easy for a child to make that connection and adults just freak out when you even mention that. Yeah, uh, well, they don't have the years and years of um, programming and attachment, these deep-seated emotional attachments to meat. And then they haven't been influenced by the tyranny of the majority. <laughs> right. Um, so where did you come up with the idea for the storyline and have you ever done children's books before? This is my first children's book and I was teaching art at an elementary school and kids were always really curious about why I wasn't eating their cheese sticks and, you know, shrink-wrapped, uh, organic, you know, whatever, whatever it was. Happy meat. Drink cheese. And I started telling them little, little bits by little bits, and I realized that there was no book out there that was talking about this stuff without sugarcoating it. Um, And I, I find that kids appreciate the truth and feeling like they're being let in on a secret that's been kept from them. Um, I think I think anybody who you know has told a kid a secret can understand that feeling. They get excited about it and they want to know the truth. Um, 
And so I decided to write the book from there, from that experience. And also, it's known that in Los Angeles, kids were a huge factor in making the Los Angeles recycling program so successful. You know, they went, they educated the elementary school kids, and those kids went home and essentially radicalized their parents and taught them <laughs> about recycling. So that fact alone inspired me, you know, what a powerful, influential demographic they are. Yeah. It's kind of funny, traditionally, or, you know, back in the day, there was these fairy tales, Mother Goose and Grimm or whatever, and they and they really were grim stories. There was, you know, wolves in the woods ready to eat little kids, and, and for, you know, I'm sure that was kind of true. <laughs> and uh, and now, like, the, the monsters are the, the people who exploit animals, and there's a lot yeah, of and, and things to be scary about. Yeah, they, I think most kids' book. If you go into you know the kids section of any library or bookstore, there's so many books about animals, and we grow up learning to love these animals, and then there's this gap um, between the animals that we grow up learning to love and the animals that end up on plates. I've heard a lot of parents writing to me saying, you know, my kid, it dawned on them, you know, at dinner when they were we were eating chicken and. And the child asked, is chicken chicken? And they put it together in these moments, and I think most kids have a reaction. That they don't want to eat a bird. That's, that's an absurd thing if you really think about it. Yeah, I, I have this like feeling. It's um, not, not a theory I've, or a study I've read anywhere or anything, but that, you know, that all of us have kind of at least one of those moments when we're children that we kind of make that connection and then you know there's some kids that uh can suppress it or or some kids that you know s decide to go vegetarian right away and some sometimes their parents support it or sometimes their parents you know talk them out of it and and then i think other kids you know might bring it up to their parents or might not and and they just learn to bury that somehow and that's kind of you know the the moment when they could have changed but didn't and then by the time they're an adult they've forgotten all about yeah it's, it's a disconnection and disengagement and we grow up from birth with this program that eating meat is normal um and it it goes from there we i think kids function from an instinctual place when they find out where their food comes from. And as adults, we've learned to turn that off. And I was just listening to um, Oprah the other day, and they uh -oh. were talking about this study that was done um, a while back on the spirituality of children. And they were talking about how kids have mystical experiences um, in nature with art and in ritual, and I think that veganism and my book really represent all three of those matters, where kids can really relate, you know, to the ritual of food, something that they do every day, and um, feeling this connection and their place and power in this web of life with nature and animals and the artwork. So I'm excited, you know, to make that connection as well. So your artwork is, the animals are very uh, geometrical and, uh, you know, they definitely don't look exactly like real animals, but, I mean, obviously you can look at them and tell which animals they are. That came from um, teaching art at the elementary school again. The kids were so genius uh, about essentializing the shapes of animals when we would do animal projects. Um, you would draw crocodiles, you know, in a horizontal V shape, you know, with just these gigantic mouths. And I was really inspired by the way they were able to, you know, reduce these animals down to these geometric shapes just to catch the essential form. So that's where a lot of the design in the book comes from. So do you think because you drew them the way that you got kind of inspired from kids, you think that that would affect how kids react to the book? Maybe it well, I think 
any kind of visual stimulation helps uh, helps teach and educate. And I'm seeing Earthlings. I think a lot of us vegans have seen that film, and seeing those images really solidified and justified what I was doing with my diet. Whereas before that, it was more about my own health, but that pushed me over an edge. So making the images in this book catchy and interesting and maybe a little different from other illustration I think was definitely a plus um, in allowing children to connect to what they're seeing. And then drawing the scenes of the factory farms, um, it seems like you, you try to use a lot of dark deep blues and it's, it's I'm it seems like it would be hard to make a factory farm scary enough in a in a children's book <laughs> yeah it was definitely um I had to find strike a balance and it's funny some of the some of the big reviews call you know they said the same thing you were saying they're dark and they're scary but in actuality in the in the planning stages of this book i tested out um a lot of the images with kids by reading it to them and over and over a lot of kids were mistaking um crowding for cuddling so i had to go back and actually make the images darker and you know the animals a little dirtier and sadder looking yeah that's funny and they take it very literally and and also I took care not to make it, you know, overly scary and manageable for a, a child capacity. Yeah. Well, it's like I was saying, like the original versions of Little Red Riding Hood and uh, the Hansel and Gretel and all that, were, those were pretty scary stories. But Yeah, scary and didactic. <laughs> and probably the people who were criticizing you weren't thinking about that. They were probably thinking about the happy uh, caterpillar children's books and things (laughs) exactly i I think you know they weren't thinking like a child does and and neither was i in in those first stages of the book i learned a lot from doing those tests with kids so uh you sent me some of the reviews that you were getting um kirkus said children young enough for this are in no position to make dietary choices for themselves yeah, I mean, <laughs> that one, I really wish there was a game show called Guess the Carnivore, because this one would be a no-brainer. Yeah, and, uh, <clears throat> and then there there was uh, some locavore, L.A. Yoga, also never explores sustainable meat-eating practices. Yeah, I think this comment is very um, common, and it goes back to what you guys were talking about um, on one of your last shows with the, the woman who was on talking about humane farming. Yeah. And I didn't address sustainable meat practices in my vegan book because, you know, I, I don't believe in such things. I didn't address the tooth fairy or the Loch Ness monster either. <laughs> After all, who is it sustainable for? You know, certainly not the animal. Yeah, and I think we're seeing a lot of this, this quote unquote greening of the meat industry. Yeah, I think it's the biggest threat we're facing right now in the animal rights movement. Um, people are always looking for a way to to uh, escape the ethical question of eating animals. You yeah, know. I mean, I just saw an ad in the New Yorker, and I wrote a letter to them. Um, it's a Monsanto ad. I have it here in front of me. And basically, there's a huge picture um, of a raindrop coming off of a leaf and a picture of corn and a picture of soy and the title across the top is how can we squeeze more food from a raindrop and they're talking about how the earth's population is growing exponentially at such a speed where we're not going to be able to support feeding everybody unless it says we put science back in the hands of farmers and create seeds that do not need as much water and it says at the bottom um, improving farmers' lives. That's sustainable. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's that's, so, I that's mean, the most ins- evil corporation of all time right there. It, and it's insulting to even the most, you know, mainstream ideas that people have about climate change. I, I really hope that people see through this kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I, I wish I had more faith that they would. Uh, <laughs> well, we're doing our part. Yeah, we've got a big, big battle ahead of us. Uh, so, now that this is out, are, are you going to make another one? Yeah, I've got, I've got the ideas in my mind. There's always more to talk about. Um, probably more books along the lines of how our choices impact the world and I think I'll always have a, a vegan spin on what I put out there. And have you what are what are the good reactions you've gotten to this book? Yeah, let's not leave those out cause, because those have been more amazing and of course it's easy to react to the negative ones. Um but I've heard from people all over the world, um from Prague and Amsterdam and Africa and uh, I've, I heard from um, Senator Nico Kaufman from the Netherlands whose party is the party for the animals, it's an entire political party devoted to animal rights and sustaining our environment and he was really excited and wanted to get the book out there and, and translated into Dutch and <laughs> I've just gotten great emails from all over the world and it's great to see the message spreading and touching people who you know, felt the void of this information for kids or didn't know how to explain and balance the information in a gentle way without sugarcoating it. So how's, how's the book doing as far as sales? Is there a way to gauge that for you? Or? It's doing good. I mean, you can see on Amazon it's been maintaining its you know, it's been at number one in the children's issues nutrition category, and it's maintaining, you know, going from that number to number three and four. But it's been there for a while. I think that's a pretty good gauge. Yeah. It's definitely got a very catchy look to it, and uh, it's definitely filling a void in the children's book department. <laughs> I don't have children. Actually, the most some of the most supportive people have been librarians, and oh, really? they're not. They're they're really open to information, and they love information. So I'm really excited to be in contact. So with how can uh, how could our listeners get this book into their libraries? What what's the process for doing that? A lot of people have been writing to me saying that they're they're buying a copy just to donate it to their either their child's school or directly to their library. I think. Pretty much every library is open to donations. Um, do you know if, do libraries, have you heard of any libraries, like, not accepting them? or? No, not, not yet. I haven't been banned <laughs> yet. <laughs> who's, who's your publisher for this? Is it a pretty mainstream publisher? The publisher is North Atlantic Books. They do um, a lot of the raw food books that are out there. Oh, yeah, I saw you have David Wolf. uh recommending it on the back yes he's one of my favorite people <laughs> but random house distributes all the books okay. for north atlantic so the book you know should be everywhere where books are available and i'm proud of them for getting behind this book and having the balls to put it out there yeah i went down to my local bookstore which happens to be right below my office and uh i was i was thinking i was just going to order it from them and uh, I went to order it, and they said, oh, we have that in stock. And nice. I was like, wow. Nice. I mean, I'm in a pretty progressive town, but I, it had just come out, so I didn't really expect it to be there. Well, I think most people have heard about it because the vegan community is so excitable, and word spreads fast in the, through the coconut mine. <laughs> um so I, I don't have kids, or I'm not too familiar with kids. <laughs> but um, do you have but any? You were one. I was one, yeah, but I still am an <laughs> older version. Um, what kind of uh, resources are out there other than your book for for um, vegetarian kids or families that are raising their kids vegetarian or want to explore veganism for no, kids? There's, there's so much information out there for adults and not too much information out there for kids. I know PETA has a program um, targeted at humane education of youth and 
most um, animal sanctuaries like Animal Acres and Farm Sanctuary have events where kids can come um, and participate and hang out with the animals, and that's always great. Um, I, but I think a lot of it has to do with the, what a parent exposes their kids to. You know, and, or do you take your kids to the zoo or do you take them to visit the animals on a farm sanctuary? Are you, um, you know, do you, do you give birthday presents from Toys R Us or, you know, you could do something more out of the box and green like sponsoring an animal on a sanctuary in the child's name where the child can actually have a photo of this animal that they feel a connection to. And take them to visit them. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's all kinds of stuff. We just have to start thinking outside the box and um, realizing that every choice, in every choice there's an opportunity to um, take some responsibility. I think uh, since you mentioned zoos, that that would be a really great topic for a children's book. Yeah. Um, probably even more controversial. <laughs> yes. But uh, that there there isn't enough literature out there, and even in the animal rights movement about zoos, I don't think um, they're kind of a hard hard uh, thing to take on because people are very attached to them. Also. Yeah. I mean. We've all been there and seen the elephants roaming back and forth, and it's really horrifying. Yeah, going insane in their cages. Yeah, but I I didn't cover those, you know, the topics of circuses and um, animals used in medicine. Yeah. Experiments, just because I wanted to focus on, you know, what we can, what we can affect directly with our food, and those kind of things take a little more work and extra activism and I think food is the best place to start and we can do it every day and you know pluck ourselves from this long chain oh there was one other thing I think we didn't cover maybe it was the uh, the comments that some people had made about um, indoctrinating children with politically motivated lifestyle choices yeah, I think that's become an easy one to answer just because you see that meat-eating is considered neutral and veganism is considered political, whereas neither is neutral. You're either voting you know, for a destructive system that affects animals and your own health and the environment, or you're voting against it by not taking part in it. And... Um, you know, KFC has their new slogan is "Unthink." So yeah, <laughs> I'm really ex- I'm really excited about that because that makes my job easier. You know, I just have to point to the other side about you know who's who's putting the propaganda out there. There's a fine line between education and advertisement. Well, yeah, and like McDonald's building these huge playlands to lure children in and putting toys and Happy Meals and yeah, sponsoring Sesame Street. I think that I mean meat eating is is the true indoctrination because because if children were given the choice usually of killing an animal they would never do it. Right. So you have and to you have to get them hooked on it and then someday they might find out but by then Right. And and in the context even of the food pyramid which informs all federal school lunch programs you know, this book is a tiny counterbalance to that, and, and I've um, looked into how they create that pyramid, and it's, they take meeting it's a board of 13 members, and they take meetings with food industry lobbyists from all over the world who fly in, you know, to lobby for their, um, their serving size to be increased, and the, in this last reincarnation, representatives from Atkins were there pushing... Oh, great. So these are these are who are dictating um, our national food programs. So, I mean, to to call my book propaganda is just absurd in that context. It's a tiny, tiny counterbalance to this massive machine, and it offers an alternative to, you know, what's what's normalized in our culture. Well, we're really glad you're out there doing this. Uh, Thank you. And. Um, be looking forward to 
your future endeavors. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming on. Thank you, Derek. And that was Ruby Roth, children's book author, talking about her new book, That's Why We Don't Eat Animals, a book about vegans, vegetarians, and all living things. Great book, and you can check it out at her website, wedonteatanimals.com. Definitely check it out. It's good for kids, good for kids to be told the truth at a young age so they can make their own decision as they get older. And so that's it for our show. Thanks for listening. We've got a little outro from the original show I'm going to play here, which is entertaining, as most of our outros are, I think. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we promise to make it more frequent in the future. We've got some more shows to dice up and uh, serve you with your tofu. I mean, this is really a show for adults, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, the world's scary. It's going to scare you one way or another. Um, Right, Tony? That's right. (laughs) Of course. When the doctor says, there's something on your, on your biopsy I want to tell you about. <laughs> oh Tony, your colon's not looking too good today. <laughs> Sometimes you have to tell the kids about the polyp. <laughs> and on that note, oh, we're going to end Vegan Radio. Oh. Hey, get you, the you heck out of here. You don't get to say what we're doing. <gasps> sure I do. Okay. I'm a co-host. Just this time. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. Co hostess with the mostest. <laughs> Indeed. Well, here's some knife sharpening fun for your kids. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> don't tell your mom where you heard it. WXOGLP Northampton 103.3 FM. W-X-O-J. Valley Free Radio. The station does not necessarily condone the things we say here. <laughs> In fact, the station has no views whatsoever. <laughs> the station is omnivorous but we have vegan radio for you kids and uh we'll see you next couple weeks maybe if we don't self-destruct <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs>